Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. D.A. Carson is a scholar at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, D.A. Carson says, all right, let me, let me position something for you, and I want you to think through it with me. There's a godly woman in her middle years diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. So let's ask this question. What in the world is God doing? That would be a normal question. Why is this happening to this precious lady? She might even be asking herself, why is this happening to me? I don't like this. I don't get it. So D.A. Carson says, my little brain can imagine several possibilities. At one level, God may be just providentially allowing the fall to take its course. So we live in a fallen world. Uh, this kind of thing, cancer comes for the righteous and the unrighteous. And so let's just see how the righteous handle it versus the unrighteous handle it. Maybe that's it. Uh, he may be preparing her for eternity. You know, it's a great grace to know, hey, I'm going to die. Let me get ready for it. Some of us won't have, I guarantee you, some of us in this room won't know that's going to happen. It'll be taken subtly. We will not have time to so-called prepare. It's a great grace. Or he may be shocking her 20-something-year-old son or other relatives that she's been praying over and over and over for to prod them into repentance, to prod them into the kingdom. Or he may use her testimony about the joy of the Lord in the midst of suffering to call another one of her children into vocational ministry. Or he may be using her as a way to teach people in her church what it looks like to die well. And the Lord knows there's going to be a whole bunch of deaths in that church. Someone's got to lead the way to say, this is how you do it for the glory of God. Or he may be teaching her ministry husband, slow down husband, take care of your family. The family is your premier ministry, much more than ministry outside your family. Or he may be sparing her from living long enough to witness the moral destruction of her daughter. Or perhaps she's hiding some deep bitterness and hate in her life, and God is using this to deal with her bitterness and with her hatred. Now, D.A. Carson says, I admit i got a small brain. I don't know a lot. My, my understanding of God is that he's multi-layered, and the things that he does in our life, who knows? He is at work, however, and we know that he is trustworthy. Everything might just be perfect in your life right now. Everything might be rosy right now. Everything might be wonderful right now. Uh, I kind of doubt most of us would say that. There are challenges out there. There's suffering in my life right now. There's pain in my life right now. There's some situations that the Lord has laid on my heart that aren't good right now. And some of us may feel like we're living in absolute hell right now. What's interesting here is the Father has a plan for that proverbial hell. I, uh, I'm interested this morning as we are on our way, and you know we always go over this passage, my wife and I. Uh, she mentions particular uh, a prayer. We were praying, we were praying praise, worship prayers on the way. And she prayed especially to the loving Father. I was thinking in terms of righteous judge. I don't know why. It says right here, son and father and son and father. It's obvious in the text, this is a loving Father. But I couldn't think loving Father. I was thinking righteous judge. Now, you don't know this about uh, my life, but... 
Uh, every day I, I, woke, I woke up this morning, I went through my morning routine. And that deals with the Psalms, it deals with the Proverbs, some reading out of the Old Testament, some reading out of the New Testament. I drink green tea, make sure I make my bed, you know, morning routine. So I have a number of things, some of them take me a while to do some, but I mark them off. But one of the things I do is pray through a portrait of God. And my friend, Alan Coppage, who's going to be here for the men's retreat on March 21st, make sure you sign up for that. It's going to be a great day for the men, a great day for the ladies. But uh, Dr. Coppage has written down eight major portraits of God. And uh, I'm not going to name all of them to you. One of them's righteous judge, and that's the one I couldn't get off of this morning. But that's not the, the, the portrait that's talked about here. Every third day or 13th day, whenever there's a three in the, in the calendar, I go to the third portrait of God. And the third portrait of God in my lineup of portraits is loving father. And I just want to go over one portrait a day in my morning routine. And I, uh, I love day three and 13 in the month because that's when I especially think about the loving father. I go over it all the time. Why I didn't see it in this passage, I mean, it's almost unforgivable that I wouldn't see it in this passage. But here it was. The loving Father loves us so much. If you have discipline in your life, if suffering is happening in your life and the Lord's using it, if there's something you think, man, the Lord's smacking me down right now, guess what? It's because He loves you. And if you don't have any discipline in your life, if you never have any suffering, everything always goes, then guess what? You're illegitimate. Woo! Bring on the hard times. I'd rather have the Father in heaven with hard times than happiness and be illegitimate in the kingdom. And so that's what this passage is about. And I'm, I'm thinking, Lord, I want the loving Father to be active in my life because I have some things that aren't going extremely well in my life right now. This Hebrews 12 is an exposition of Proverbs 3. In Proverbs 3, we were going over this passage in our, uh, in our prayer group the other day and in other discipleship groups that I was leading. And Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 goes like this. My son, son, my son, says the father, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son whom he delights. Thank the Lord. Amen. And amen. Now, when we got, uh, when we got together, my wife and I, uh, we knew we were going to have kids. And she, she understands that in all likelihood, the way that we're going to have either boys or girls are going to come through me. That's kind of how this gender thing happens. So let's look at Matt's family and see, does he have mostly boys on the freedom side or mostly girls? And she notices, uh, she never said with dismay, but anyway, she notices that, you know, it's kind of a boy thing on the freedom side. And so she thinks, I better get ready because boys are coming. All right. And guess what? Boys came. Uh, have five boys and a girl, as you know. But she said, when we had our first one, she goes, listen. Uh, you're going to teach me how to raise boys. I don't have a clue. I says, oh, don't worry. I have a clue. And by saying that, I thought what they need is huge doses of both love and discipline, Amen. of affection and righteousness, of loving touches and other kinds of touches, if you know what I mean. All right? They need 
ample opportunity at both sides of the Godhead on that dynamic. And so I determined I want to be a man, I want to be a father of tremendous love and touch and hugs and snuggles, as well as a man that disciplines well his kids. Now, let me tell you about an instance. I think I've said this before. Let me do it again. One day we were having small group over at our house on Sunday night, and I just have always loved the whole idea of having church in homes. That's why Dayspring is largely a house church. We have a good bit of our church services in homes. We were having one in my home, and uh, it just so happened that I actually forget which kid it was. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. Let's just, let's just say it's, uh, I think it might have been Zeke, maybe Zay. Anyway, we were having uh, the group over at our house, and it just so happened that he had loosed himself from Mary. Mary takes all the kids, but sometimes that means she's got a bunch of kids on her hands. Uh, sometimes she's had 12 or 15 in a single room because that's the kind of families we were bringing to our... So anyway, we have a kid that has sprung loose, and it's my kid. And I look up there, and let's just say it's Zeke. I said, Zeke, come here. Come to Daddy. And Zeke comes over, kind of... He's in diapers. He kind of waddles up. By the way, he's in, like, diapers. That's not like he's in them. That's all he's got on, all right? He's got his diapers on. He comes up. That's the way we roll at small group. We don't try to dress up for the, for the company. We just assume your family come on in, and this is the way we live. Anyway, so he comes up. I says, jump up on Dave's lap. And so he stays up on Dave's lap, and I'm leading the study. You think, well, this is going to be chaos. I said, be very still. And he was very still. Then somewhere in there, about 10 minutes later, he decides, he does the old bow the back thing. He bows his back. He says, time for me to get rid of daddy. Right? So he jumps down. He get, so this way, he jumps down. He goes two steps. And I say, you may stop right there. And he stops right there. I continue with the study. He doesn't move a muscle. Until his legs start to quiver and he plops down on his diaper. I says, Dad will be with you in just a moment. And he was just as still as he could be right there. Until the study was over, grabbed him up. I tell you what, if I had secrets to tell, people were willing to listen to the secrets after that study. And it had nothing to do with the great, insightful Bible study I just had. It was, how do you do that? How do you do that? I said, well, there is a method. But I'm not sure you're going to like it because it includes a healthy dose of discipline very early in life. Now, you can wait until they're five, wait until they're six, wait until they're 13. And if you're really dumb, wait until they're 17. Or you can say, no, pretty much when they can look at dad and recognize I'm telling them to do something and they say, I don't think I'm going to do that. At that point, discipline moves into the deal. Love to be sure, but also discipline. When they look at you and say, I'm not going to do it, that's when you start using discipline. And that is the point here, I think, with the Lord. I want to do those things in your life. Most of us don't want them because we're kids. Who wants discipline? But if we are willing... To accept his love, we must accept his discipline. If we're willing to be adopted into the family of God, we must know that discipline comes with it. And it's always good when it comes from the Father of lights. 
It's always good for us. The Proverbs talks a lot about disciplining children. I'm teaching a class right now at the seminary called Discipleship in the Home. We went over these the other day. 1324. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. It's okay if you want to say amen. You don't have to. I'm going to do that again. I'm not sure. (laughs) He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Discipline your son, says 1918, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. 2314, punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. 2215, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Listen to this one, 3017. The eye that mocks a father that scorns obedience to a mother will be pecked out. Let me read that again. The eye that mocks a father that scorns obedience to a mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley, will be eaten by the vultures. So y'all, if you are pro-love, pro-life, pro-hope, pro-wisdom, pro-eyeball, you're going to be pro-discipline. You're going to be pro-discipline. And that means you're sometimes going to have to do some things in your own child's life you're not going to want to do, just like I expect, anticipate, that the father sometimes has to do some things in our life he'd prefer not to have to do, but he does it nonetheless because he loves us. So God allows us to go through trials and temptations so that we will grow in maturity as Christians. God uses these trials, and we'll go ahead and say it. It's hard to hear this this morning, but sometimes, sometimes God will make the trials happen. Sometimes our fault, sometimes not our fault. He'll make the trial happen for some greater good. I think there are four kinds of discipline. Number one, I think there's punitive discipline. That's when <laughs> you just deserve it. It's coming. Do I believe God does that? Yes, I believe God does that. Does it feel good when it happens? Invariably, no, it doesn't feel good when it happens. But do I believe God uses discipline in our lives that's punitive? Indeed, I do. Uh, I believe that there is a shaping kind of discipline. Uh, this kind of thing, for instance, uh, in our family, we expect certain things to happen. Uh, I want the kids to all take their turn in this family to take out the trash. Uh, we want the kids to take their turns in uh, making sure that we go out to the abortion clinic once a week. These are shaping kinds of disciplines. And if you're going to have a child that's going to be responsible, that's going to be holy, that's going to be loving, that has a shot of being the kingdom man or kingdom woman, you've got to have some shaping disciplines in their life. And I think the best thing a parent can do is decide what those shaping disciplines will do in the first year of the child's life, not in the 12th year. So you think, what are the shaping dynamics I want them to have? Do I want them to sing hymns? Do I want them to be able to pray ancient prayers? Do I want them to memorize scripture? Do we want to do these things together? And those are the kinds of shaping things that are so incredibly important. So there's punitive discipline. There's shaping discipline. There's training discipline. Listen, good athletes want training. It's not easy. We know it's not easy. But there's no way to ever get to the Super Bowl without going through some serious, serious training. One day I'm wondering, what what are we going to do with with my oldest son here? He's coming to age and dad needs to start teaching him some stuff. 
whatever the stuff might be. And I'm thinking, well, what stuff do I know? Well, I don't know how to fix cars. I don't know a gas tank from a carburetor. I swear I'm just dumb as a rock. <clears throat> so I don't know how to cars. Uh, I don't hunt. Don't fish. Uh, really, uh, on the whole, don't have a favorite football team that I want my kids to love. So I'm thinking, well, what do I have to share with them? That's a man thing. I want to share a man thing. And finally, it all of a sudden, Donald, you're mad. You kind of like lift weights. Take them weightlifting with you. Teach them how to do that. So I took Caleb along with me. And literally, within a couple years, he's setting American records in powerlifting. But we had to go through training to do it. I had to teach him how to do it. That didn't take much instruction. He just took it and went with it. But here's what you do. And here are the exercises that aren't deadlift and squat and bench that you have to do in order to get better at deadlift, squat, and bench. And so we taught him these things. He ran with them. He trained, and he became quite good at these things. Same thing happens in homeschooling. We're homeschoolers. If you're a public or private schooler, the bully for you. But the point here is the way you get smart. I love Regis came up to me and says, Mr. Matt, I made an A. I made an A. What'd you make an A in? Computer science. Way to go, guy. But it took some training to get there. You're not going to get there without learning some things along the way and building other things on those things. That's training discipline. And the Lord wants us to go through training discipline. Then there is a suffering discipline. Suffering discipline is interesting because some people say, anytime I go through any suffering at all, it must be God doing this to me. Well, sometimes suffering is not a result of our sin, but of living in a fallen world, God allows that in our life, but didn't mean he caused it. Job is an interesting study in scripture. All these things happen to Job. And the whole theology of the day was, hey, look at what's happening to Job. Isn't this terrible? Isn't this pitiful? What in the world did Job do to deserve it? He did nothing to deserve it. And at the end, the great outcome of Job is he never understands why suffering, but he is closer to God. Y'all, suffering is worth it if it draws us closer to God. It's an interesting thought. If I knew that I had to suffer mightily in the next 10 years of my life, would I be willing to vote in favor of the suffering if it means I get closer to God because of the suffering? Or I could just stay right where I'm at with the Lord and no suffering at all. Which would you choose? I fear most of us would choose no suffering. And the Lord says, no, 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 don't do that. I want to use suffering in your life. I might cause you to suffer, or honestly, it might just going to happen anyway. And since it's happened, I can use it in your life. I'm thinking right now of the blind man that John 9 talks about. Anybody remember John 9? This incredible passage, and the disciples got a question about it. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, neither. It was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. Would you be willing to suffer your whole life that the works of God might be displayed in you? That's when we know we're holy, when we're willing to say, you bet, to that question. There's another example here of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. And Joseph suffered innocently, but ultimately God used it for his good purposes. What a great purpose it was. It saved the nation. It set up the nation to be extraordinary in the future. And so, 
I just want you to know it's human nature. It is human nature. It is human nature to fight back against correction. We fight back whether it's punitive, whether it's shaping, whether it's training, or whether it's suffering. We don't want to do it. But if we are going to be loved by the Father, it has to happen. And when it happens, it'll be good. Might not feel good, but it will be good. 1960, there were uh, two men that made a bet. Hmm. Uh, 50 bucks was a bet. This guy named uh, Bennett Cerf and Theo Geisel. You probably know Theo as the name Dr. Seuss. And they made a bet. I don't know why they made it. I don't know, what, I don't know the background of it. All I know is Bennett Cerf says... I doubt that you could write a book using 50 or fewer words and make it interesting to a kid. And Sue says, oh, yeah? Watch me. 200 million copies later, we find out Seuss won the $50 bet. Green eggs and ham. You ever heard of it? It's a classic. If you haven't read it, let me go ahead and get you back up to speed. Sam I am, right? That Sam I am, that Sam I am, I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam. I 50 words or less, 200 million copies. Here's the point. Every one of us have constraints on our life. I, for instance, doubt that I'll ever have a billion dollars. That's a constraint of some kind. I ever doubt that I'll ever be good looking. That's a constraint of, of, of sorts. I doubt that I'll ever be able to write as well as John Grisham. That's a constraint of sorts. No matter your life today, you have constraints. Amen? And the point isn't, boy... Who's got fewer of them, but what you will do with your constraint. And so, constraints are not the enemy. Every artist has a limited set of tools. Every athlete has a limited set of skills. Every entrepreneur has a limited amount of resources to build with. And so, what's supposed to happen here is God gives you constraints, and then you creatively figure out how to work with them. He gives you all the grace of creativity, figure out, what to do with your constraints for the glory of God. And let's just see what happens here. And that's every life. That's all of us. So we can get mad because of the constraints of our life, or we can say, no, constraints are a good thing. If there's some guy out there with 50 words or less, can sell 200 million copies and make this one of the top five classic children's books of all time. What could he do with you? Do you suppose? So let me tell you what a constraint is. Constraint at the end of the day is what discipline and hardship and suffering are all about. Those are constraints for our life. And the Lord says, you've got them. Some of them, I made them happen. Some of them, frankly, have just happened. But we all have constraints in our life. Now, 
What I'm asking you to do is work with me to creatively develop those constraints for the great commandments and for the great commission. Are you willing to work with me? Because I'm about ready to do something enormous in your life if, if with those constraints you will allow me to work in your and through your life. And if we'll let him, whoo! I think, by the way, this is one of the reasons why there's so much good literature and so much good art that comes out of Mississippi. I'm thinking right now, mostly of writers. Have you ever looked at all the writers we've produced in this state? And you want to know why? I think it's because of the constraint of economics, the constraint of suffering, the constraint of being the number 50th state out of the 50 states in multiple categories. I think it's because we got problems down here. And what does the Lord do? Watch to see what I do with Mississippi constraints. And if he can do it with this state, could he do it with you? Could he do it with your life? Could he develop you and create something incredible with your life? God disciplines every one of his children because he loves them. And he uses the constraints of our life because he is so turned on about each one of us. I had a mentor that told me regularly, Matt, I love you and I'm so proud of you. Y'all, God loves you and is so proud of you. But your best is not even close to have happened yet. Your best is yet to come. God loves you so much, he's going to constrain you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to train you. And yep, sometimes he's going to punish you. Work with him and see what happens. Every head go down, let's pray. Anybody here right now willing with a raised hand to say, Pastor, I need your prayer because I feel constrained. I don't know if it's of God or not, but I feel pain and suffering. I feel discipline in my life. I feel that I need your prayer this morning. Just raise your hand. I want to pray for you this morning. Jesus, you see these hands all across this room. These are people willing to admit, Jesus, I need you in the midst of my suffering in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my constraints, maybe, Lord, in the midst of your punishment in my life. I, Lord Jesus, want you to work with me and help me to creatively develop an extraordinary life for you. It might be a simple life. It might not be a well-known life, but a life for you. I pray for my brothers and sisters who've just raised their hands, Lord Jesus, that you would powerfully move in and through them for your kingdom for your glory, for your great commission, and for your great commandments. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, that incredibly creative three-in-one, we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you very much.